Welcome again to another edition of the Chip and Gary Tennis Show. I hate it that Chip Hooper's not here today because uh, we've got a special guest on here that, that Chip knows and who knows Chip. But uh, I can handle this one because I can go a little further back than Chip. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to my hometown because it was just a great tennis mecca for the size of a town. It was Louisville, Kentucky, not being in Florida or California or New York. It was, it was kind of a, a really nice tennis hub because there was a lot going on. They had a fellow named Sam English that was real integral in bringing the professional tournament there. And uh, I remember when they opened the Louisville Tennis Center where the professional tennis tournament was, and uh, it was opened by Pancho Gonzalez and Fred Stolle that came in and played uh, an exhibition as they used to do in the days and probably got paid a hundred bucks a piece or something like that. But I'll never forget, I saw Pancho Gonzalez in the warm-up hit a volley and he went all the way under it and then he started waving his finger at it to come back and it just popped back over the net. He caught it in his hand and it's kind of one of the things little 11-year-old might remember that uh, that stuck with me. And uh, Later on, the pro tournament, ball boying for Laver and Newcomb and Rosewall and all these great players was fantastic. And uh, back in, I guess, about 67 or 68, the year that Arthur Ashe won the U.S. Open, Philip Morris had a little tour going around where they would play exhibitions. And uh, Manuel Santana, who was, I think, number one in the world that year or around that time, and and a young guy that was in the uh, Army, or I think Arthur Ashe, was also there and would come in and played an exhibition. And so those are some indelible memories that I have. But even before that, when I was nine years old, since it was in Louisville, the Kentucky Invitational, which is actually the National Clay Courts, later just changed the name, but it was the National Clay Courts at the time, in 1965, I was nine years old, and they let me in the 14 and unders, and uh, I lost 6-0-6-0 to Mac Pigman, and uh, the reason I know that is the racket slipped out of my hand, and a photographer took a picture of it, sent it into the Courier-Journal, and then they sent it into World Tennis Magazine, and this was in World Tennis Magazine. And I'll remember the tournament because I watched the two best players in the country on clay that year play each other in the finals. And one of them that won the tournament was, is, you know, arguably maybe the, one of the best junior players ever to play. We're going to ask our guest about that. And one over longtime tennis player, tennis coach, tennis pro, and uh, Armistead Neely. Armistead, welcome to the show today. Oh, thanks, Gary. Nice to be here. What, what, you know, it's funny how tennis really kind of comes around in a big network because I can mention the names of my childhood, and uh, I'm sure a guy like you that's played for 60 years and played at the very top level of tennis, uh, Armistead was, you know, never lost a match at the University of Florida in three years, was an All-American and one of the top collegiate players with Charlie Owens on the team as well, who was a great player. And uh, I'm just kind of wondering, I, I mentioned there Pancho Gonzalez and uh, Manuel Santana. And when I was looking at some of your results in the archives, it looked like you played uh, both those guys, didn't you? Well, I, I, I had the unfortunate experience of playing Pancho when he was 42. 
at the L.A. Tennis Club where he grew up playing a lot. And he, uh, the number one seed was a kid named Jimmy Connors who had done well at Wimbledon that year. And I think Jimmy was one or two in the world. Pancho was 42, as I said. And I drew Pancho in the first round of the um, uh, Southwest Open I think that's what they call it at the time. And it was uh, the tournament that everybody went to after Forest Hills, the U.S. Championships, and then headed to Asia or Australia to play after that. And um, Pancho gave me a little lesson on the L.A. Tennis Club courts. Um, he was a, a force, and he went on to win the tournament, beating Connors in the final, uh, I believe it was straight sets. Uh, and... Um, that was 1969, I think. What do you remember about that match? Well, I remember Pancho, they call him the Lion. That was his nickname when he was at the apex of his game, when he was a youngster, 22, 23. And, uh, of course, he was recruited to Jack Kramer's professional tour shortly after doing well at Wimbledon and winning the U.S. Championships at Forest Hills. Um, he was the, considered the number one amateur in the world, and Kramer, of course, recruited those guys. Uh, there wasn't any money in the game pretty much at all at the time, and so Kramer could guarantee those guys a, a nice paycheck if they stayed with the, their group for a year or a few. So um, Pancho was a, a surgical player. He was a very... Um, very tactical, he was uh, strategic in his thinking, he uh, didn't give you anything, no angles to work with, uh, and that's what I think made him so good for so very long, was that he just picked you apart, as the old saying about a death by a thousand cuts. His serve was extraordinary because it was so well placed, and as you know, you don't have to hit a huge 150 mile an hour serve if you hit it right in the corner every time and it's only going 110, 115, 120, it's still an ace. So um, that was Pancho's gift, was he was very good tactically. Yeah, I think Roger Federer's kind of proved that point that you made, and, and when I thought of, that's really interesting because every podcast I do, I learn something because I had thought he was just a big bomber, which he could bomb his serve maybe, but not as big as some of these guys. And uh, But he put it in the corners and just could place it. And he, he had a lot of feel on his backhand, didn't he? He did. He actually sliced his backhand. He preferred to slice. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It was a shot uh, to set up the to get into net. And of course, until the game became faster with the technology changes and racket improvements and uh, all the things that happens in today's game, string improvements, uh, the net was where you won points. So they would move each other around and Pancho was good at that and put you in a troubling position and then he would get in the net and uh, they didn't call him the lion for nothing when he got up to net. <laughs> yeah, he, had, he, he, he was great at the net. and. You know, back in that day, uh, you know, especially out in California where the courts are faster, a, a really good slice uh, approach coming into the net or something was deadly, and uh, Federer's proving that still on the grass, I see. But Pancho, you think of him as being a big guy, but he had a lot of uh, touch and interesting to know that he was so crafty. Yes, he, he, he relied on his serve and his volley. That was his game. Uh, of course, his forehand was, was very, very good, but he won points.
strikes with his serve in his volley. And I think that was true of Kramer in his day. Um, I think you could say that if the courts were faster in today's game, you could say that of Federer as well. But the courts are so darn slow now uh, that you cannot, and with the technology improvements, you cannot rush the net like you once did. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, let me ask you a question. Let's go back a little bit to when you started playing tennis. To take us back, where were you? You grew up in Tampa, Florida. I actually I moved, my family moved to Tampa when I was seven, and I took up the game at eight when my mother took me down to the public tennis courts and said, stay here, and I did. <laughs> and uh, so I happened to fall into, uh, under the tutelage of a guy named Calhoun Dixon, who gave uh, lessons to anybody who, any child who showed up for the grand total of 50 cents a year. And so um, he was an accomplished player, best player in the South in his day, about 6'8", and his uh, nephew was a guy named Mark Dixon, who became a great player for that? Clemson and uh, a top 100 pro player in his day. And he was also a tall drink of water. He sure but, was. Uh, he, he started me out, and a guy named Vern Markham took over uh, from Cal, and um, then I had a little bit of tutelage from a guy named Bill Leffler, who was a longtime pro at Westside Tennis Club for 20 plus years. And he was an extraordinary pro, best pro. Uh, Ian Vernon, best pros I've ever been around. Yeah, I believe he um, went to Nashville after that. That's correct. And he was, he's the guy who was recruited by King Gustav of Sweden, who was a huge tennis enthusiast yes. in the 50s. And uh, King Gustav enticed Luffler to come over and teach the coaches in Sweden how to coach, which he did. And the results were a guy named Bjorn Borg and company. How about that? And probably another fellow from Sweden back when you were playing, what was his name? Uh, Lundquist or? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, he, was, he was before Luffler came around, but Lundquist was, uh, I didn't get to play him, but he was a, just a little before, but he was the national champion, yes. So, so you, you, you come up in Tampa, and you had told me previously that there were kind of, what, four areas of Florida that were really tennis areas? Well, there were, we were lucky in Florida. Of course, Florida's a vacation spot still is, and so what do you do in a vacation spot? Well, you build golf courses and you build tennis courts, and tennis courts are a lot cheaper than building golf courses uh, for municipalities. So the city of Orlando and the city of St. Petersburg and the city of Tampa, the city of Orlando or Miami, Fort Lauderdale, et cetera, had these extraordinary pros teaching there, Jimmy Everett in Fort Lauderdale, Slim Harbert, Miami, Dr. Curry, whose son Huey Curry was many times national champ in Orlando, uh, Vernon Markham and Tampa, and a guy named Dan Sullivan in St. Petersburg. And these guys produced champion after champion, literally scores, if not hundreds of players who were nationally ranked. And Hubie Curry, uh, Dr. Curry's son, became your doubles partner as a junior, didn't he? He did. Uh, when I, I played my first tournament, I drew him in the first round. He was national champion. As a, in fact, he won his first tournament when he was six. Uh, he was a phenom, uh, served in volley when he was seven and on. Um, but he beat me. I don't think I got two points. He beat me 0-0, first time I ever played at age a nine and uh by age 11 we were playing doubles together and playing in the nationals so we had a nice time 
Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when I was uh, looking up my old world tennis to kind of see how that tournament went in Louisville, remembering seeing you play there, uh, I'm looking it up, and you guys actually got to the finals of the doubles as well in Louisville. Well, that's something I, I don't have very big memories. You know, we don't remember a lot of our matches, do we? I mean, we're, we're going to go a little further than that because the listeners are really going to be confused when I go through some of these scores that you had later on that were just ridiculous. And that's another thing we're going to talk about, hopefully, is, is the length of the tennis matches without tiebreakers because – I'm looking through Army's results on the Pro Tour, and actually before the Pro Tour, I guess when you had these little southern tournaments where people like Santana and Osuna were playing these tournaments, which is astounding. But um, anyway, yes, you uh, we kind of now that I've got that right here, uh, you guys lost to Bill Harris, and I, I've seen this name. Is it Speaker Specker Spiker? Spiker? In the uh, finals, six four in the third, you almost won the doubles. Yeah, Bob Spiker was a fine player, and his brother Paul was even better. Uh, Bob went to Georgia Tech, and Paul went to Rice University. They're both fine players. Uh, but uh, yeah, I really don't have much memory of that. Uh, usually, you remember your losses, and you don't remember your wins. That's right. That's right. Um, but I don't remember that. Well, thank goodness, I don't remember that loss. But. Uh, uh, it's um, these guys. Florida had a very strong contingent of players. Were very deep. So did California. So did Texas. Uh, the Eastern Seaboard didn't have a lot of. They had caliber players, but not a whole bunch of. Not very deep because there weren't a lot of indoor courts around. Mm-hmm. So during the winter, they played basketball or something else. So same thing for Chicago. There were scattered players, but the strength was Texas, California, and Florida. So we had tons of players uh, playing the juniors week in and week out. There was a tournament pretty much every single weekend, and I think I played at least three tournaments a month, uh, meaning Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, for, oh goodness, for seven, eight years. That was fantastic how they had so many tournaments back then, and and tennis was really more of a spectator sport back then. But yes, Army, you don't remember your wins, but... In the third round, you took out Lee Steele, 3-3. Three and three. In the quarters, this is interesting, because I know that you played Charlie Passerell later on in the pros, but uh, you beat Stanley Passerell at 6-4 in the quarters. Now, he was a good player, too, wasn't he, Stanley? He was, a little bit younger than I, maybe two or three years, uh, but a fine player, coached in Puerto Rico uh, by, uh, they had, gosh, they had a maybe a dozen excellent players come out of Puerto Rico. Yes, they uh, did. being the most famous. Uh, Welby Van Horn was the man who tutored all those guys. And he was a, a legend in Puerto Rico and, and a fine player in his day. That's interesting. That's interesting. And you, you took out uh, Dan Blackinger, and then there was another Welby uh, protege uh, that Bill Harris took out in the quarters, uh, four and a third, which was Tico Carrero. Is that right? Is yeah, that his first yeah, name? That's right. That's that's right. Tico Carrera went to Rice University. Standout player, great off the ground. Um, of course, in Puerto Rico, they played on on dirt, on the clay. That's where they learned to play, and they were strong off the ground. Uh-huh. Uh, Tony Ortiz and Stanley and Tico and oh, Charlie yeah. and a bunch of guys. Yeah, and Freddie De Jesus later on. That's right. 
so, right. So. so you uh, so so you had a had a good tournament in in Louisville, and I bet you probably don't remember who, but I bet you had private housing as they used to do in those junior tournament days. I did. I, I don't remember the name of the host family, but I do remember they were connected. He was an executive with Coca Cola. They had a fine house, and I was thrilled. I'd never stayed in the house that nice before. But uh, and uh, I think Turner Howard was my roommate from from. Uh, uh, Tennessee. He was a good and, player too. What was he from he Knoxville? Was. That's correct. And uh, I remember this actually sticks in my head because I, if it's the correct date, '65, I think I played Bill Harris in the final, um, and uh, Bill didn't lose much. He was uh, certainly he and Mike Belkin and Chris Everett and. Uh, Matt Claflin, Bill Colson, a few sure, others. Sir. You sure. could say that they were the best, some of the best, uh, to come out, ever come out of the juniors in Florida. Bill's record was phenomenal. I happened to play well against him there and um, served in volley all the time and on dirt. And um, when we changed sides, I'm serving for the match at 5-4. And when we changed sides, Bill turned to me and said, and I quote, you really think you're going to win this, don't you? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, yes. And I served it out. <laughs> How about that? Now, he was, uh, he, he, Bill, Bill Harris kind of went off the rails a little bit mentally, uh, apparently, I heard. But he, and passed away a few, several years ago, didn't he? He did pass away 10 plus years ago. Bill was afflicted with schizophrenia. It was diagnosed when he was a freshman and after his freshman year in college. He went to Trinity University, which was a powerhouse, of course, as you well know. They were just loaded every year. Um, in fact, one year, I think it was 63, maybe 64, they had the Wimbledon champion and the French Open runner-up playing on their team. Um, they had Chuck McKinley and Frank Froling playing one-two. So um, they were phenomenal. Uh, they had all kinds of players. But he, Bill went there. And uh, he had to drop out because his affliction got got him, and uh, he really never played again after his collegiate experience. But um, he suffered badly from that affliction. That's a shame. That's a shame. I, I, I don't, of course, remember how he played, uh, but I just remember people talking about him. And there was a thing on uh, on this tennis. Uh, site uh, they were talking about who the best player ever to come out of South Florida and the boys in the as a man and they were talking about Frank Froling and Bill Harris and you know in that South uh, Miami area but uh, here's your fourth round at the Western see if you remember some of these names I know you'll remember all of them probably Bill Harris defeated Roy Barth sure um, Dick Dell defeated Turner Howard. There he is. Yeah, yeah. Passerelle defeated brother. Rombo. Yeah, Dick's Dick's brother was uh, Donald Dell. Donald Donald Dell, yeah. Uh huh. And then uh, uh, this Spiker uh, beat Hainline. Yeah, John Hainline from Michigan. That's right. That's right. Doug Verdick. Yeah, from California. Beat somebody named Thompson. I don't remember that name, but. Uh, Presley ver defeated Turpin. Now, Jamie Presley was a college teammate of yours, wasn't he? He was. Uh, he played two uh, his freshman, junior, uh, and sophomore years, and then Charlie Owens came in our senior year, and Charlie played two, and Jamie played three. 
I don't think Jamie lost an SEC dual match during his, uh, or if he did, he was maybe one. I don't think <laughs> you did time. either. You didn't either, well, did you? Well, actually, uh, I lost to three guys. I lost to uh, Roy Barth once after leading in the third set, which I'll never forget, <laughs> forget at UCLA. And then I lost to Pat Kramer twice. I um, lost to him, too. He had some soft hands, but... Uh, well, uh, you did, you never lost an SCC singles match, is what I'm talking correct. about in three yeah, years. No, I never never lost an SCC match, a dual match. But um, but yeah, I played. I think I lost four times in college. But um, I didn't like losing those four times. Well, that's <laughs> one time a year. I guess we'll let you do that, Army. But it, uh, it you, you're talking about uh, uh, the uh, SCC though. You know, there were really good players in, in the number one spot in the SEC back then. We Even Kentucky, we had Tommy Wade probably at that time that was pretty sure. pretty decent, not at your level, but, but a really good player. And Steve Falk down there at uh, LSU now. And then I'm looking at the archives, and I see where you and Steve Falk played in the finals of the New Zealand Open, the New Zealand Championships. Do you remember that one? It was a three out of five set match. Yeah, it was all on grass in those days. Uh, the whole New Zealand circuit was grass. There were about four or five tournaments. We played in Timaru, and, uh, and we played in Auckland as well. But yeah, everything, and, and that's the change, one of the big changes in the game was uh, there was no money, of course, or so little that if you won the doubles, for instance, maybe you got 50 bucks or 25 bucks. If you won the singles, maybe you got $100 or $200. Um, and we're talking world-class players. Um, so you play every event you can get your hands on. So every player, when we were playing the grass court U.S. circuit, meaning Marion, South Orange, Southampton, Brookline, and Massachusetts, uh, and the U.S. championships at Forest Hills, uh, you played the doubles, the mixed doubles, and uh, the singles, uh, the mixed doubles was two out of three sets, the doubles was three out of five, and the singles was three out of five, and you played those every single day. Um, so you're on court six, seven plus hours at least every single day uh, until you got knocked out of the tournament in those rounds. But uh, So it was, um, there was a lot of attrition going on, guys wearing out, but... Um, there were long matches, no tiebreakers, so having a match being 9-7 or 12-10 was kind of normal, and many times it would go much longer than that. Well, that's that's really interesting. Now that we're getting into a little bit of, you know, your college career and then on to the pros a little bit, um, I'm just going to throw some names out there because I was looking at some matches, and, and maybe some of these weren't on, I know some of them weren't on grass, but it's amazing that when you're talking about six or seven hours on grass, even though it might be quick points, uh, you can play some 16, 14. I'm looking at uh, Jaime Fio got you one time 18, 16, 7, 5. That was kind of a short, <laughs> short match because it was straight. And then he got you. He got you another place. Five, seven, sixteen, fourteen, six, four, something like that. Then I'm looking dibs. Eight, six, ten, eight, and you know Van Dillen, eleven, nine, seven, five. I'm looking at these matches, and then you know it's it's amazing. But I wanted to ask you one thing. And Army, I think some of your friends call you Army for short, don't they? Most do, yes. Do they? This uh, there's a tournament that was 
I don't know if it was in Montgomery, Alabama, where it was called the Dixie Championships. You'll tell me. But I'm looking, and I'm looking at the different years you played. You played Rafael Osuna. You played Manuel Santana. You played Dennis Ralston. And then I think one of the last years you played, you beat Roger Taylor, who was a great English player with a big serve. What, how did those – how did a place – where was that? Was that in Alabama? This was part of the what they used to call the Caribbean circuit. And it was a very – I don't know when it started, but I'm going to guess and say in the 19 – late 1920s, 1930s, and it was the, sort of the Christmas circuit. So they go to warm climes, and they play in Curacao, and St. Petersburg, and Miami, and Tampa, and then down in Puerto Rico, and uh, San Juan, and then they play in the islands, a couple of spots. So there were seven or eight tournaments of people who played were the best in the world. You were Labors, and, and Rosewalls, and Stollies, and everybody else, Manola Santana. Uh, so that kept going till I think that circuit ceased about 1968 or so. And uh, Tampa was one of the stops. Um, I was always uh, seemed, seemed I was always played the first seed, uh, first round. And as a collegiate player, I felt like, well, gee, I wish I didn't have to play the first seed all the time. And I asked my father, who used to help out around the club. I said, I had the worst luck in that tournament. This is, I asked him this question maybe 30 years after the fact, 40 years. And he said, yeah, I made sure that you played the number one seed every single time. Because <laughs> I didn't want you to get the big head and think you had no improvement to be That's made. That's funny so right there. I got my rear end kicked by the best players in the world, and it let me know that I had a long way to go before I considered myself good. Well, that's uh, that's. I tell you what, that might have been a smart father right there. You know, he well, could have even done better. But uh, not to interrupt Army, but I mean, I'm 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 throwing those names out. But when I'm looking at it, and I see those names, and then I see you know Tom Ocker here, Pancho Gonzalez here, uh, the Metallica's dad's Torben Ulrich, who you played at the U.S. Open, and all Arthur Ashe, and all these names. I, that hit. Even even Charlie Owens split with you. Even he got a win. He, <laughs> I look, I think you beat him once, and he beat you once in the two that were listed. I'm sure you all played a lot more than that. But uh, that must have been great, playing all those great players looking back on it. Not many people are going to be able to say that. It was, it was great. A uh, different era, of course. And the people who taught me to play, uh, it was there was no money involved, as we say so often. So it was a game of respect. You respected your opponent. You respected the game. You Sportsmanship was a huge part of the game. Um, and uh, the idea was to have a great experience and enjoy the match. Try to play your best. Win with grace and lose with grace. And um, that may not be the way it's done totally today with, I think, uh, the exceptions are the Federers and the Dolls of the world. They still win and lose with grace. Uh, you can't say that about a all the pros, uh, but um, in those days you could. Uh, you could say that about all the Australians. Uh, they certainly were gentlemen on and off the court and uh, to the man. And, uh, and, and so was every, everybody was expected to, to play and enjoy the game and, and try to enjoy the experience. So uh, playing all those different guys from all over the, came from all over the world, different styles. And then the other kind of curveball 
which you didn't learn until you got out of the, your state or your city was that they play with different tennis balls, which had different weights and different um, consistency. So mm. you play the Italian Open and you play with a Pirelli ball, which was like playing with a lead weight, or you play the Bostad tournament in Sweden, play with a tree torn ball, which was tremendously heavy. Or in uh, the German Open, you play with the Dunlop ball, which was not as heavy, but pretty heavy. Then you go to Wimbledon and play with the Slazger ball, which was like playing with a ping pong ball. It was so fast. <laughs> and uh, then you go to the U.S. Open and play with the Wilson ball, which is kind of a medium speed, something you were used to. But uh, every surface was different. Every ball was different. And then, of course, the officiating was catch as catch can. You never knew what you are going to get because it was just somebody out of the stands calling the match. So um, it was bizarre. One thing I want to ask. One thing I also wanted to ask you about because I th- I have a personal interest in it because I played doubles against this fella and he was your doubles partner, uh, Patrick Dupre, in the '74 Open, and you guys played Pancho Gonzalez's son and Jimmy Connors in the first round. Do you remember that match? Yeah, I do. Uh, Spencer Gen- Spencer, um, Spencer Gonzalez, was a very Segura. good player. Yeah. Uh, sorry, excuse me, Spencer Segura. And uh, I think he went on to become an, uh, a lawyer and accomplished one at that. And he and Jimmy were very close friends. And uh, Jimmy played with Spencer because they were buds. And, and uh, Spencer could hold his own, but uh, Pat was a very good player, better than I. And... Um, and we just got the better of, of Jimmy and Spencer uh, trying to hit as many balls as we could to Spencer. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but, you knew, uh, to, you knew on, to do that. It was on grass, and uh, uh, it was quick, and, and the grass was, at best, modestly good in those days. And for the yeah. listeners, Patrick Dupre was semifinalist at Wimbledon and, and the number one junior uh, when I was 16. Uh, he was 18, and he was number one uh, when Vetus Gerolitis and Amaya and a lot of good players were up there at the top that year. Freddie De Jesus at the time, so he was uh, he was a smooth player from from Alabama, actually. Which uh, yeah, from Dothan, Alabama. Now you've got a buddy that's also oh, no, from Aniston, pardon me, Aniston. A- Aniston, Alabama. That's right. That's, that's right. right. You've got a buddy from Al- uh, from Alabama that you played college tennis with a little bit, and then a little pro stuff afterwards, didn't you? Yeah, uh, you're talking about Charlie Owens. That's right, Charlie Owens. Tell me about Charlie a little bit. Well, golly, how do you describe an enigma? Uh, Charlie, um, let me just give you an example. Instead of trying to put it into words, I'll put it in a uh, description of action. Charlie, not all the time, but sometimes would, before a match, go out and practice his shoulder rolls before a match. So what he would do is run as fast as he could in one direction and then throw himself on the ground and do a shoulder roll, a pratfall, and pop back <laughs> up and run back in the other direction, do a shoulder roll and pop back up. And of course, uh, he was a, a gymnast uh, in a sense. Is that right? Not, not formally a gymnast, but he was very good at it. He could pratfall and he did it off the tennis courts as well. Um, he did a pratfall to receive his SEC championship trophy at number two. He fell up the podium steps to receive the trophy um, on purpose. Um, he would pratfall for, for laughs, just just to get the uh, audience engaged. Um, he was the, 
the consummate entertainer on a tennis court. I think he cared as much about having the crowd enjoy themselves as playing excellent tennis. And to give you an idea of his degree of skill, he quit the tour, was off the tour teaching tennis for about six years, decided he would go back on the tour, and within six months he was in the top 60 in the world. That doesn't so, surprise me. <laughs> not many people can do that. <laughs> no, he uh, he was telling me, I had an interview with Charlie, because, I mean, Charlie is, was a great, great talent, and I can see that because he was looked like he was triple jointed or something, and <laughs> like a Gumby man or something, but he, he, he told me to ask you about the Land Chile circuit with Pato Ape. Yes. Does that ring a bell? Yes. Uh, Pato Ape was a pro at the Sonesta Beach Club in Miami, just uh, very close to Key Biscayne, on Key Biscayne, actually. And um, he put together a tour of about eight or ten cities, the capitals of South America. And... Um, it was a, an exhibition tour in a sense because we all got paid a, just a flat rate to play. I think it was $500 a week. But we got all our expenses paid and there were about a dozen of us. But we played as best we could against the players among us. Uh, uh, Mike Belkin, Charlie Owens, Luis Baraldi, uh, Hans Plotz from Germany, a bunch of players involved. And uh, the caliber was good. Um, I played Charlie in the final that tournament he's referring to. It rained and they uh, put down duct tape on a basketball court indoors and uh, it was lightning fast. And the problem was that there was a steel post on the court so we had to <laughs> run around <laughs> and we had to dodge this thing and he kept serving the end of the post. <laughs> That's that was funny right there. Right there. <laughs> but uh, so we had these the odd things happen. Um, another interesting thing on that particular tour, uh, he played, uh, Charlie that is, played, we played in Cali, Colombia at a country club, very nice place. And um, Charlie was not the favorite among the fans because he was playing a Colombian player, uh, Molina. Oh, yeah, and, Ivan yeah, Molina. Ivan, Mm -hmm. That's right, and he was a, a very good player. And Charlie um, was winning until a Coke bottle hit him in the head. <laughs> and, <laughs> so they had to, you know, patch him up a little bit. And then I uh, went back out and finished him off. But it, that kind of stopped him in his tracks. But um, he, you know, wasn't a favorite among the fans. <laughs> I don't think that was the time. Because you got him one time, nine seven four six seven five. That wouldn't have been that match, would it? Or you, me, you may not remember. Me, me playing Charlie? I, yeah. I, we, we played a number of times. Um, I don't remember them all. I, uh, a couple of stick out uh, in my memory because they were funny. We, we had so much fun playing with each other and against each other. Um, we played at the Vero Beach Club which used to be a big pro tournament, and we played in the final one year, and it was uh, the era of the nine-point tiebreaker. So if you get the four-all and the tiebreaker, you play one point to decide the match. And uh, whoever won that ninth point won. And so we had split sets, and we got the four-all, it was Charlie serve, and Charlie would throw the ball up and say, and then catch it, say, you, 
I bet you thought I was going to go to your forehand on that one. And then he'd throw it up again, and he said, I bet you I thought I was going to your back on it. I said, yeah, if you hit me before I get... And we just had this dialogue for three or four minutes about what he was going to do and what I was going to do in response on this match point. And uh, it was quite funny, very entertaining. Uh, what, that's, that's interesting. Now, when you were playing those Southern tournaments, uh, did you ever run across Zan Gary in the match? Yeah, we played a few times. I don't remember how many. We, we played at the, uh, uh, in Birmingham at the racket club there. Uh, that was a very active club. We had a, a very good, both of us played well that match. He won the match something like 8-6 a third or 9-7 a third or something. Uh, a cliffhanger kind of thing. And I was charging the net and he was slugging around, uh, the ball from the baseline. But, um, we had a good match, and uh, then he beat me again uh, in, uh, let's see, I think it was the National 40 Clay Court Championships, and I played back-to-back. -back. I was 45, so I was playing the National 40s, lost in the final, and went down and played the National 45s the next week and on that one. But, um, uh, so we've played a few times. It's always been a dogfight. Yeah, um, I saw that match. I think that match you're talking about was 7-9. I think you won the first set, 9-7, and then it was 6-4, At least that, that's what, you know, you were <laughs> close on that 8-6. Right. That's the old memory. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to throw back to somebody that I think you spent some time teaching a little tennis with, maybe Gardner Malloy. Can you tell the listeners who Gardner Malloy is? Or well, Gardner Malloy was a stalwart on the Davis Cup team in the 40s uh, and 50s. He was a lieutenant in the Navy during World War II. Uh, he was uh, captain of an LST boat, uh, which is a landing craft. A large landing craft. Um, I don't remember, uh, I don't think he was involved in D-Day, but he was involved in landing uh, Marines. And um, he played tennis before he got involved in World War II and then after. And he played well, he played open tennis well into his 50s until he was about almost 60 years old, he was competitive. And um, he just loved to play. And uh, he was, some would call him irascible because he had no filter. Whatever he was thinking, that's what he said. And um, uh, I liked him because he was, he was a good guy, he's a hard worker and, and a heck of a player. Um, he and his partner um, uh, won Wimbledon and they were both 42 in doubles. Um, Budge Patty. Uh, uh, it was either Budge Patty or I th it might have been who you, the guy who used to run the U.S. Open for or U.S. Championships for so many years. Billy um, Talbert. Billy, Billy Talbert. Talbert. It was either Billy Talbert or Budge Patty. I don't remember which. But they won Wimbledon. They were forty-two. If you could imagine that. Wow. Um, well, I can but, because Gardner Malloy apparently played into his nineties. Yes, he did. He did, and he. I, I worked for him. Uh, I was off the tour for trying to make a little money. Uh, of course, we never had much money, but I tried to make a little bit working for him down at a place called a Hollywood Club in Hollywood, Florida. Um, he was opening this club, and um, we had played off and on since I was a 14-year-old. 
and uh, he employed me for a little bit as as a pro. And um, he was just a really fun guy to be around. And he was a, a health food addict. He always ate very healthy food since he was a youngster. And uh, that had a lot to do with his longevity. He was way before the curve on eating well and nutritiously. Interesting. But, you know, he was. I read his book when I was a youngster called The Will to Win. And uh, just always fascinated with these guys. And one of our podcasts, uh, we were talking to Kerry Stansberry out in Northern California, and he's friends with Vic Statius. And just so you don't feel too bad about winning that $50 and that doubles, he said, uh, when I won Wimbledon, they gave me a $50 gift certificate, but you had to buy it. It was in the local sporting goods store. I don't know if it was Harrods or what, but he goes, you had to buy something tennis-related, so I bought a sweater with my winnings, and then I won the U.S. Open, and I didn't get anything <laughs> except a little bitty trophy or something. So it's, it's kind of funny how it was back in the, the uh, old days. People coming up now, they probably don't realize uh, that – you all, you know, really played for the love of the game because you yeah. had to fight just to make your expenses to go somewhere to play. We were pretty much living uh, hand to mouth. We didn't have any money to spare. We, uh, whatever entry fee, and we could get a meal somewhere. We were great, and they'd have a cocktail party. We we're stuffing rolls in our pockets. <laughs> uh, it was uh, typically that's the way it was. There was nothing, no money. Um, I did an exhibition. A good while ago with Fred Stolle, and he was telling a story. Uh, his son Sandon used to be a top 100 player, and he was bemoaning the fact that um, in the mid-60s, uh, Stolle had won the mixed doubles, he had won the doubles, men's doubles, and he'd lost in the finals of the singles, and he'd won less than $200 total for the three which, uh, which tournament? Which tournament was that? Wimbledon. You are kidding me. Uh, no, and uh, he tells the story of that, and he said, "Now my son just finished playing Wimbledon. He lost in the first round of the singles. He lost in the second round. Oh, sorry, the first round of the doubles. He won one measly match in the mixed doubles, and he won twenty-five thousand dollars." Wow. <laughs> He was so upset. <laughs> <laughs> well, he blazed the trail so Sandon could have made some of that money. Well, I'll ask you a question then because this was a good result that uh, I, uh, I I read about. Uh, I played this tournament and lost in the last round of qualifying to Eric Friedler or I would have played Ken Rosewall in the first round of the Washington Star. But you had a nice tournament. You won that tournament and you I, I was looking at the names and uh, some people I knew, uh, Bob Kreis from California, uh, Ben Bishop, who I didn't recognize, but I've heard that name. But I remember Lito Alvarez, you beat in the next sure. round. And then this Louis Baraldi that you've mentioned, that tells me that if you beat him in the fourth round, it was definitely a clay court tournament because <laughs> Luis Baraldi 
played with Cliff Drysdale, if I'm not mistaken, at Lamar and um, or, or after him, unless unless he was at University of Corpus Christi with Humphrey Hose and Jorge Andrew, but he was the kind of the Bud Collins of Mexican TV when Kevin Curran and Steve Denton and I go down and play San Luis Potosi. He was he was the TV commentator. I didn't and, know that. Yeah. yeah, so it's funny how these names come back. And then you got F.D. Robbins, who was a great player from Utah in the semis, and then Freddie McNair in his hometown in the finals. Tell me well, about that I, tourney. I, I didn't remember anything. I don't remember <laughs> one of the I don't remember any of those. But uh, I, of course, remember all those names. Uh, as you say, Luis was from Mexico City and a fine player. And um, uh, you know, you, you miss seeing all these guys. These were your friends, the guys you hung out with. Uh, day in, day out, practice with them. They became fast friends, and they were from 50 different countries, so it was just a great lifestyle. Um, but no, I don't remember, to tell you the truth, uh, a lot of that is just in the mist of years gone by. But um, Here's one where you got Brian Godfrey. I know you're a little older than Brian Godfrey. You got him two and two down there in Florida one time. That wasn't a bad win, but uh, do you even remember beating him? Because I'm Sure. No, no, I'm, I'm going to go back and change my resume. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I'll have to that. verify. I'm going to have to verify all this stuff, Marmy. <laughs> well, it'd probably be a good idea because a lot of a lot of people, you know, they <laughs> they uh, remember. I, without mentioning names, um, saw a guy not long too long ago, and he said, "Remember when I beat you in the U.S. Championships?" and uh, actually, he lost to me, but he was convinced that he beat me. <laughs> so I think we remember how we wanted to be. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, you probably you probably let it go. I, I, I did. I just let it go. <laughs> I saw, I, I, this must have been an interesting player to play at the U.S. Open. You lost to him in five sets, Eon Tyriac. Yeah, that was an interesting match. Uh, he was in fine form, Ian. Uh, of course, well known for his antics. He speaks like six languages, and uh, we all thought of him as mad as a hatter. But uh, now he's a billionaire, so he must not have been too crazy. But um, he shepherded Nastasi and played doubles a lot with Nastasi. But in that particular singles match, um, the courts at Forest Hills were as I mentioned before, average at best, a lot of bad bounces. And um, I was up two sets to love against Ian, and um, uh, every time he got a bad bounce thereafter, he would kneel down on the court and take a bite out of the grass, oh. take a big chunk out of the grass with his teeth and spit it out. And uh, so there were these bite marks all over the court. <laughs> um, so uh, that was, of course, the idea was to distract me, which it did. And uh, I kept asking the umpire, would you mind asking him not to eat the grass? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I eventually lost that match in five, and the same thing happened to me, uh, Gerald Itis at the Farstills U.S. Championship, up two sets to love, and lost at five again. So I had a tendency to lose in five after being ahead, huh. which was annoying. But... Um, Anyway, uh, those were fine times. I had some good results at Forest Hills, but uh, it was, um, I'll tell you a, a quick story. This is an um, uh, interesting story. I, I played Paul Girk in a match, um, and without making it too long, I played him a match and got solidly beaten. And a friend of mine had said, well, 
instead of staying at the Roosevelt Hotel where the players were having a discount, why don't you go stay at this um, friend of mine's apartment? She is a, a, a stewardess and she'll be in Japan. So here are her keys. She won't even know you're there. Just go over there and stay there for a couple of days and you'll save some money. I said, fine. So I checked out of the hotel, went over there and it was one of those hot summer days in New York and the apartment had been closed up so the apartment was about 105 degrees and no air conditioning so I went in and uh, tried to turn on the air conditioning first thing and I blew a fuse so uh, now the apartment is completely pitch black and I thought well I'm going to save the day and at least take a shower because I hadn't showered after my match so I'm showering and uh, I hear uh, I get out of the shower and I hear somebody fumbling at the front door with the key and the lock and I realize that this stewardess has come back early from her flight <laughs> and she doesn't know me from Adam so I have two choices. I can open the door in the darkness and say, hi, how you doing? And my towel or I can jump out on the landing in the light uh, in my towel. Those are my two choices. So. Um, I chose option two, stepping out of the light in my towel. Of course, she screamed and ran down the hall. But um, so I, down a couple of floors through the uh, stairwell, I told her who my friend was and that he had given me her keys and she demanded I leave immediately, which I did. And so, <laughs> you know, wow. so uh, it's, uh, it's not the life that the pros enjoy now. It was always uh, quite an adventure just getting from point A to point B uh, safely. <laughs> was, that, was that after a U.S. Open match? Yeah, after I played Gherkin immediately. Oh, my I, gosh. Wow. So, uh, well, they had, they had a great team. They had a great team, didn't they? Yes, I uh, followed that. I, I thought I'd save the day again. I went downstairs to the, her apartment, and they had a laundromat, and I didn't have any clean clothes, so I <laughs> took my suitcase, and I took all the stuff out of my suitcase and put it in the washing machine, and um, sure enough, the manager came in and said, we're closing, get your stuff out of the washing machine, so I put on my wet clothes into my suitcase and left. <laughs> what a story. What a story. <laughs> Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you a question. You you went on after that, after after your playing days, uh, and you became the uh, head coach at Bama. How was that? Well, I followed Bill McLean. That was fortuitous. Um, I was playing a circuit out west, and uh, two guys were playing it. Well, three guys: Sam Buelli, uh, Mike Shore from Seattle, and. Uh, uh, another fellow, Bobby Deller from Hawaii, yep. and they were going to, Sam had just graduated from Alabama, and Bobby and Mike were attending Alabama, and they said, we just lost our coach, we would sure like it if you would apply, so I applied, and uh, with the help of some other folks, uh, I got the job, and spent five years as a collegiate coach, which was eye-opener, a lot of fun to teach talented kids and that's I think every coach's dream is to teach talented juniors and uh, people who will listen and, and, and try hard so um, that was a lot of fun huh. well and then uh, and then you moved to Atlanta which is where you live now yeah I've been here over 30 years I, I moved to Atlanta because uh, basically, I can make three times the amount of money and and make half the effort as a college, <laughs> as a uh, running a country club. 
uh-huh. because uh, being a collegiate coach is a 24-7 job. Oh, and uh, running a country club is eight hours a day or 10 hours a day. Uh-huh. I, I considered it easy compared to college coaching. But, um, and you make a lot more money. And uh, there was, wasn't, at the time, there was very little money in college coaching. Now, of course, uh, you're making, if you're at a good school, you're making six figures, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. a comfortable life. But um, in those days, there really wasn't much money in it. But you did have your summers free, and I think that was the advantage. I would take off in the summer and go play professional events, which was fun for me. Uh, at 31 or 2 or 3, uh, go play overseas somewhere, uh, South America or Europe, and uh, and try to win some tournaments. Wow, that's, well, a, that, that's a great life to be able to extend that playing career. And had another fellow that was a very good player in your day that uh, settled in Atlanta to be a tennis club owner, and that was Dave Power. Yeah, that's right. Dave, uh, he ended up at Windward um, uh, area of town, north of town, and uh, he uh, teamed up with Greg Grover, and they were in a partnership at a, a successful academy type of um, setup. Of course, there are numerous academies. Uh, the Ginepri's here in Atlanta at the Old Town Tennis Club, and uh, I think Jeffrey owns that now and is coaching on tour a bit. But, um, uh, yeah, Atlanta is, as you well know, um, has the, the most tennis players in the world. There are over 120,000 uh, recreational tennis players who play oh, anywhere from three to five times a week. So um, it's very active. There are over, over 5,000 clay courts and over... 5,000 hard courts, probably approaching six or seven or 8,000. Uh, that census I just gave you was, is 10 years old data. So um, it's, it's a huge number and tennis is very popular here. It's, it's, it's unbelievable because there were, in our day, there, you know, there was Crawford Henry and Bitsy Grant and the Richard Howe here or there, but there, it wasn't wasn't like that back then. The South was more evenly represented, and now it's it, it is it's the biggest tennis place in the world. And those courts get used in Atlanta too, unlike a lot of they places. Do. They do. They they uh, on league days trying to find a court is near impossible. <laughs> Armstead, I, I was talking to a fellow friend of both of ours, uh, Philip Landauer, who fancies himself winning all these gold balls now that he does and that's something that you've continued to do at least uh, up for a long time played international uh, teams and playing the tournaments uh, is that something you still do or have you retired from that now I've had since 2014 had some serious medical issues set me back a good bit a couple of brain surgeries got your heart surgeries couple of strokes but um, I'm not that far away I make pawn my way back in a little bit um, so um, I've won I guess after that I've won one national title and doubles and I'm uh, just trying to concentrate on uh, getting my balance back and foot speed and all that coordination back because I had to learn to walk again and button my shirt again and that sort of stuff so it's a kind of a, a tricky because it's all about hand-eye in tennis, and so uh-huh. that's uh-huh. kind of tricky. But but no, I'm I'm not playing that bad. Um, I just need to uh, 
get younger somehow. Just get healthy. Get healthy. Get, get healthy and get younger. <laughs> well, Armstead, it's been a blast talking to you, and I hope we can talk again and, and uh, discuss some other things like, uh, you know, junior tennis and what's going on or what you see in the in the game today versus, you know, it's we, we've talked about it enough, I guess, of how we used to play, but kind of talking about these guys. You know, the one got, thing I'll say is even though Federer is kind of uh, – uh, has in a lot of respects a lot of the aspects of the new game, but he's he's got a lot of the old stuff going, doesn't he? Yeah, that's why it's such a pleasure to watch because I don't know what he's going to do next, and that's unlike many of the players you see on TV. I know exactly what they're going to do next. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> so I think that's the the great fun of watching him. Uh, Nadal. It's true, you might know what he's going to do next, but you have no idea where he's going to be standing when he when he does it. I mean, he might be 25 feet behind the baseline doing some impossible shot, mm-hmm. uh, which we would never have dreamed of trying. Um, but uh, Federer is a throwback in many ways, and it, it just goes to show you that um, the old tactics uh, still work just fine. Uh, it's just a question of whether you're willing to try it. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, Army, thanks a bunch for your time, and we'll see you next time we'll have Chip here so you can talk about him, uh, what you remember about that big boom and serve of his, because you played yeah. for a long time. I'm sure you saw him come up. I just want to stay out of the way of that serve. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that's what Dick Stockton said, actually. They played a little bit. All right, well, thanks again, Army, and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you, Gary. Have a great night. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.